Welcome to Webinaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Warren. Webinaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Webinaki perspectives on topics of interest. Webinaki Windows is being brought to you by WERU in East Orland, Maine, in partnership with WMPG Portland, Maine. Uh, today is our last show in a two-part series of Unpacking Sovereignty. Uh, our guest today, as usual, it, who's been with us through most of the uh, series is uh, Professor Harold Prince um, and uh, Professor Darren Ranko. And uh, Professor uh, Prince is a distinguished professor of anthropology and an emeritus at Kansas State University. Professor Darren Ranko is a member of the Penobscot Nation and associate professor of anthropology and chair of Native American Studies at the University of Maine. So today we're just gonna sort of look back a little bit to when we first started this show. And the show actually, we had our first show, it aired on February 23rd, 2021. Uh, so we're gonna start with uh, the premise of, uh, you know, we, we talked about uh, George Washington and uh, the effect that George Washington had on the history between, uh, on sovereignty in, in between the, the state of Maine and, and tribal lands and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, we went all the way down through the, um, we talked about various things, uh, sovereignty as a tool for nation building. Um, and, uh, the, the actual things that occurred once Maine started uh, its treaty with the, with the tribes and then it's, uh, it's reaching out to take over our lands. So we covered a lot of ground. And <clears throat> so I'm going to ask uh, Professor uh, Harold Prince and Professor Darren Renko to sort of do a little bit of a review um, and and sort of just pull out the the pieces that stand out to you. Um, so Professor Renko, if you will start us out, off. Thank you so much, Donna. Great to be joining you and um, Professor Prinz once again. And, you know, I wasn't a party to your George Washington discussion, although uh, my uh, former former teacher and colleague, Professor Calloway was, and, um, it was a really wonderful show. He has great, um, great insight on on that particular era. Uh, to me, you know, I think one of the the driving force of our discussion around sovereignty is is very much rooted in um, you know the different notions of it. Um, sort of a Euro European Euro American set of frameworks that. Um, Privilege, I think, your Euro-American views um, through, uh, in in my opinion, starting with the doctrine of discovery, um, and the, the way that that privileges a kind of um, control of uh, European kings as literally sovereigns in in this discussion, as having dominion over, uh, which they. Um, in in those contexts, they root their dominion as as being uh, transferred by uh, uh, God uh, to the sovereign king. Um, so I think, yeah, you know, that comes through, you know, maybe in 
oblique ways, but I think this notion of sovereignty as a kind of dominion uh, piece of it is is uh, uh, as as a kind of control um, uh, the the ability to govern fully individuals and property found within the border um, of of a particular state or um, or 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 place is is what in the European and American notions of sovereignty that, that that's what's rooted. Um, I think uh, the other the other framework of and you know I I don't I, I would say I would call it tribal sovereignty, but I think um, it might require an articulation of other names um, depending on the cultural context in terms of indigenous people. Um, I think is a more um, um, is mobilized as a kind of like force that binds a community together. And represents the will of people to act together as a, as a single entity. Um, this the, uh, that definition is loosely based upon something that Frank Palmersheim wrote in the in the nineteen nineties uh, as a way to articulate more broadly sort of a uh, an, uh, an indigenous North American uh, set of frames. Um, so not rooted in in the ability of a of a god uh, a king to give control or dominion over. But the idea that the force kind of comes up from the the people and the relationship to place uh, and coming together, you know, and, and I think what's really interesting, of course, is you see in treaties um, um, evidence for both of these concepts. And and if you follow, the, you know, the scholarship, I mean, Harold has written about this as well. But I think you know, the scholarship of someone like Rob Williams, the, the Lumbee um, political scientist and legal scholar. He um, he's really been able to articulate early on. You see um, treaties that articulate um, indigenous frameworks of sovereignty and control based upon kinship relations and in relations to place um, and responsibility to place. Um, and then you can see as as they shift over time a more. European and and a less kin centric but more dominion centric orientation towards uh, the relationship between people and place as treaties themselves develop. Of course, the framework itself of treaty is that you only sign treaties with other sovereigns. So there is this uh, kind of a recognition. Um, uh, despite the doctrine of discovery that puts indigenous um, land-based control on a lesser status than European land-based control. Um, but you see this um, recognition that once Europeans arrive, <laughs> that indigenous peoples are part of this European sovereign type of system. But um, this, this creates some of that false um, mutuality around the recognition, in, in effect, that we as indigenous people, we refer to those treaties as a kind of holder and recognition of our rights as 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 uh, nations, but that we oftentimes by articulating our our role in that treaty making process, because the shift in narratives around treaties gets towards a, a European and American dominion over, um, we see that uh, doesn't clarify things, and um, I think. If I were if I were to kind of look back at those sort of origins of the series and sort of why we're still left with 
um, these countering definitions around it and the, the ability of trying to control the, not only control the political and legal space, but control the description and narrative around what sovereignty is and what it means for indigenous and non-indigenous people. Yeah, I just wanna, before, before I let Harold say something, <laughs> I, you know, I, what really surprised me was in the first few uh, shows we did with, uh, with uh, Colin Calloway. And uh, he basically talked about George Washington's uh, obsession with land. And, you know, in, in Washington, that's what he did. I mean, he surveyed land always. And he, he, he looked at, in, in Collins' book, he, he says something about George Washington looks, looked to the east and uh, just saw the past and looked to the west and saw the future. Um, and what Washington was doing was nation building. And he couldn't do it without the land. Like the land was the foundation to build a nation on. And who had the land? The tribes had the land. And how do they get the land? And they want the land for, for power and for wealth, for control. They want to grow a nation. And so I didn't realize how just how important land was to the to the beginning of this country. Okay. All right, Harold. <laughs> yeah, to, um, one reason why um, scholars make things sometimes more simple out of complexity, but sometimes uh, things that seem simple are really more complex and that leads us sometimes to come to false conclusions. One of them is um, the fact that we often refer to Europeans or whites and the reality of course is just like in indigenous North America, you have a multitude of different nations and different cultures. So the Hopi in uh, Arizona, for example, are politically, socially, culturally, linguistically constructed in a very different way than, for example, the Mi'kmaq or Penobscot or Wampanoag. Um, and I can go on and on with all the different nations. Some resemble each other more and others are vastly more different. Um, Hopi is really different from Cherokee, for example. And that is also true for uh, Europe. Um, so in Europe, you have a diversity of nations with unique cultural traditions. And I myself, as a native from the Netherlands, um, come from a, a land that uh, has been a republic in the time of the colonization of North America. Um, we were not a kingdom, uh, we were a republic. Um, and that republican status um, was very much the way um, the United States later was formed politically after its revolution against England, which was a monarchy with a very powerful monarch in the form of King George III. Uh, the Dutch didn't have that. And so uh, in Europe, also within England and within Germany, within uh, Italy, you have actually indigenous, European indigenous traditions that conflict against other traditions. And to use the term uh, feudal, as in feudalism, the feudalism notion of land possession is very different than the so-called allodial um, claim of land possession. And that term allodial is not well known in uh, North America, but it's very important uh, when you begin to look at on the basis of what does any sovereign claim land? Because that's the question that we have, right? On what, what is the right 
that the sovereign uh, claims. Now, the right may be invested in the notion of that that right was given by God. That's the notion of rex dei gratia. But there's another notion of a kingdom, uh, and that is re reference to the king by the will of the people. So you get an election of kings as opposed to an appointment of kings also in Europe. So the Germanic traditions of Northern Europe, where I come from, um, has actually not that notion so much of a rex Dei gratia, in Latin, the God by the grace of, uh, sorry, king by the grace of God, but a king that is an elected king. Uh, you see that, I don't want to get into a long diatribe about European history, but the key thing is that the allodial rights are actually rights that are what we now would call here inherent sovereignty. In other words, peoples may have gotten that right by virtue of the fact that their forefathers and foremothers possessed that right, not because that right was given by the king. So you see that in land grants, so on the one hand, you have the notion that the king is the possessor of all the land and then has the right to grant sections of the land to those of his followers who are um, doing him the most useful services. And then you get the whole entitlement of dukes and of counts and of barons and the whole thing who get land grants that give them certain kind of privileges granted by the king. But the other principle is the allodial um, ownership of land uh, that's derived from the Germanic word odd, which refers to land, and all, like all. So there's not a fee land, land as, as in feudalism, that's a, a land grant, but this is a land possession whereby the right to govern yourself and determine your own destiny is vested in ancient traditions preceding the arrival, for example, of a king. So that complicated notion, and this is just the beginning of the iceberg, right? The top of the iceberg, but that com complicated set of values and traditions, Europeans from multiple different nations brought to this country when the colonization came. And so the Dutch in the Hudson Valley, when they negotiated and dealt with the Mahican and the Mohawk and the, and the rest of the five nations, later six nations, was a very different one than what, let's say, happened in Virginia um, when, um, when the colonizers from England came in those parts. So you get these uh, national traditions, same thing with the French. When the French came from a centralized monarchy in France, came to um, what's now called Canada primarily, um, the whole notion of Aboriginal title wasn't even discussed. It was all simply claimed by the French king as the all-powerful sovereign. And then within England, and later also in France, you get these revolutions. So you have that period of the interregnum during the Civil War in England, when the Puritans carry on that Calvinist tradition from England, and you get these kind of early treaty uh, negotiations here in New England. So what you really need to do, and just gets the mosaic gets very complicated, because these homogeneous ideas that we have, that is all one uh, blanket that is draped over the North American continent uh, is actually a quilt. It's a quilt uh, that is draped over the huge continent from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And then you get that quilt in mobility, all kind of new processes are at work. And so that is the complicated um, element that you tap into multiple different traditions and sentiments and ideas. And out of that crystallizes an idea about um, what it is that when we talk about sovereignty, but the reality is when people are confused about sovereignty, it is really 
that the root of the notion of sovereignty itself is already bifurcated in the way that I just indicated. Namely, on the one hand, you have the inherent rights vested in the people inhabiting the land, the allodial right, as opposed to the construct of an all-powerful monarch, a king, a, a, a ruler by himself who claims that his sometimes her right comes from God alone and has then the divine power to bestow to bestow grants and favors on the subjects. So these are in conflict with each other, these two forces. One is from the bottom up, the other one is from top down. And those converge, those counter-effective counter forces converge also in the history of Maine. And that makes it so complicated, as you know, um, when people are struggling, what does it exactly mean when we talk about sovereignty? So you have indigenous sovereignty notions, which is again from the ground up, and that 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 fits well with the a, your ancient European tradition, one of them, but it doesn't fit well from the other European tradition. And so here you see the struggle between George Washington uh, and the Non-Intercourse Act that we talked about before. Here you see an arrogation of power by the central government as much as they could at the expense of what Massachusetts, for example, tried to defend, namely the right of the Commonwealth to determine what happened within its boundaries. And out of that come these treaties that we talked about before, the, uh, the 1796 treaty, for example, uh, whereby Massachusetts has arrogated a right that actually was usurped already by the 1790 Non-Intercourse Act, namely that Massachusetts didn't have that right. And that was played out in the Maine the Land Claim Settlement Act of 1980. Yeah, and, and the thing, you know, this can be really, and it is, it's very, very complicated. Um, and I think for, for me, in order for me to see through all of this haze, I guess it's complication. I think the bottom, the very bottom line, can you, can you hear me? I can hear you, Donna. Um, the very bottom line is that, um, uh, it all has to do with land. It all has to do with greed. It all has to do with um, how to how to get that land, and um, and then and, and how to control it and keep it, and uh, how to implement power. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you, Donna. I think, um, um, and I will sort of, I, I will, uh, uh, I think I want to recognize the fact that, you know, part of what Harold is mentioning yeah. as, um, you know, this different set of traditions around sovereignty, even in Europe, I, I, I will say that um, in in either system, the the European notions of sort of, traditional property, um, more, um, you know, in the, uh, individual rights-based uh, um, orientations towards property and, and tradition that comes from the ground up. I think, uh, I'll just reiterate, I think that the, the doctrine of discovery though, and, and, and the way it gets implemented uh, 
in in terms of uh, American and and uh, U.S. and state of Maine common law as a as a justification for the fact that Indigenous people could not participate could not fully participate in either one of the European traditions and was not recognized as 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 people who were either smart enough or Christian enough to um, participate in those systems and therefore were lesser than. And, and you see those justifications um, you know, in, the, in the U.S. in the common law tradition through the Marshall Trilogy from the 1820s and 30s. And then, you know, we've made a point out of, um, you know, how that gets mobilized in uh in the Murch versus Tomer case in, 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 in the state of Maine in 1842. But that 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 framework of <clears throat> hierarchy um and control and power that you were just mentioning, Donna, I think it is it, critical to understand uh um the ability to bring forward different notions um of sovereignty as indigenous and non-indigenous people. But I think you know, to me, that that's a real critical point um, to drive home because that that is used <laughs> to, by Washington and 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 uh, so the the founders uh, the of the U.S. and the founders of the state of Maine had fairly similar strategies of uh, documenting, you know, surveying lands and that weren't theirs at the time, but were obviously in their crosshairs to to expropriate um, from uh, indigenous people. And I think that that's the, that is the fundamentals of it. But I think, I, I do think, you know, in terms of the different cultural frameworks around sovereignty, I think it is, I think it is really important to kind of dig down on that. Um, um, Cause I, you know, I talk to lots of different groups about this and, um, you know, I think I referenced this in one of the, one of the episodes earlier as well, that um, we, uh we were uh i was at the main state bar association and it was kind of like one of those you know old timey lawyers in the back of the room like hey so what do you guys want as indians anyway you know like you know does the constitution apply to you does it you know i mean these are they're not entirely un you know unintelligent questions but it presumes that we don't have our own tradition around it and that we would it, it has to be sort of partial or fully incorporative of what he considers the appropriate legal framework. And I think uh, mobilizing and articulating those as in, as indigenous nations is very important. Um, but I, th and I think we do that in both, in, in primarily indirect ways. I think we're getting better at articulating what those different frameworks of sovereignty are and I actually think that they scare, uh, at least in the context of the state of Maine, they scare the the people who are resisting it. Because I think what we're what we're talking about is our collective care for our places and our connection to those places as Indigenous people, and that is translated by people in the state as a sort of seizure of power and regulatory control. And I think that's what scares them. But we can talk more about that. I'd love to hear. Harold, <laughs> as he comes back into our conversation. Yeah, yeah. If, I'm, if I may quickly comment, um, what Darren, of course, is uh, referring to is, uh, and, and the term for this is hegemony. And one element of the hegemonic structure is that it controls 
uh, discourse, including as a result, how people think about things and how they speak about things. And so when we have these discussions, as Darren was just referring to these members of the Bar Association, uh, many of them may have had at one point some philosophy in their um, coursework uh, at, at uh, college, uh, but probably not Gramsci, for example, or Karl Mannheim. Uh, these are the important critical theorists who have been able to put a theoretical analysis of how dominance really works. And dominance is not only economic power or political power or military power, but also intellectual power, the power of how we speak and how we think about things and about the reality as we understand it. And that's an extremely important element in this whole sovereignty discussion because we use words and ideas and think that we are speaking on the same level, but we don't, number one. And number two, many people are not aware of to what degree their own thinking is constructed by these hegemonic um, uh, forces that are perpetuated in the, in the textbooks, in the literature, in the lectures, in the newspapers, in the television programs, and so forth. And so when people are talking about the so-called culture wars in the United States, we know that that, uh, that structure of hegemony is actually much more splintered than diversified than it appears to be the case. Otherwise, you wouldn't have these fierce contested elections that we are now seeing in this country. Um, but these fractions are also happening on much uh, other levels, including indigenous peoples, indigenous nations, vis-a-vis uh, dominant white society, if I make that uh, that kind of a broad uh, category. But the problem in that white dominant society is that the hegemonic structures are reproduced and produced every day in the court cases. And so what you then get are these um, laws that are supposedly about right, but the opposite of a right is a wrong. And so a lot of these rights are actually the making of wrongs. And these things are in a dialectical relationship with each other because the moment you assert a right, you may also implicitly assert a wrong on the part of the other person. Or if you claim that right, you claim there's actually a wrong perpetuated and perpetrated that needs to be corrected. And all that language is more than simply playing with words because it is true that when we have these notions like right, as embedded in a law, and you have the notion of a law-making institution like a legislature and a um, law-interpreting body like the judicial, and then the executive that carries out these laws, but if the foundation by the legislators, none of whom are native in the state of Maine, because all the right that Donna has had in her years as a tribal representative, she did not have the right to participate in the lawmaking. She might vent an opinion. I'm speaking here about you, she here, Donna, but it's a, uh, but you get my point. So all these uh, decades and generations of tribal representatives sitting in the legislature, they were allowed to be heard and spoken to and were allowed to speak, but did not have the right to vote on that legislation. So they didn't have a voice because vote is a voice. And so here is a fundamental wrong, right, that about the fate and the future of indigenous nations as participants in the uh, process of the state of Maine, that in fact, they've always been uh, relegated to a subaltern juvenile position 
without the right to actually vote in the sense of their own tribal representatives. They were given, as you know, the right to vote in the, in the Maine legislature as citizens of Maine since the mid-1950s. We already have visited that. So Harold, I, I don't, well, I guess this is a conversation on sovereignty, but um, in the legislature, for a long time, and it's in my book, I, you know, in my book I say, um, I, I think that the tribal uh, representatives should have a right to vote. Um, I've changed, I've, I've changed that opinion. And I've changed that opinion because when we take, when tribal representatives, in my opinion, take a seat in that legislature, we become a sub-political entity of that overall political entity. We are there, we therefore are uh, a sub-political part. So when you, when you vote, then you really become part of it. And if, if we just sitting there is an issue too. Uh, so anyway, that's, it, it, it's taken me a long time to uh, recognize that. Yeah, if I may quickly, that was exactly one of the big problems also in the uh, uh, federal, non, uh, federal um, citizen act for uh, indigenous peoples, um, whether or not they wanted to claim that civil right because it might undermine their status as sovereign people. And the Iroquois uh, Six Nations have been, uh, their traditional wing at least, have refused to accept that, um, that uh, Citizen Act legislation because they said, we are not citizens of the United States, if that means, because that was the whole point, that therefore our sovereignty as uh, indigenous nations is thereby undermined. So what you give with one hand you take away with the other, and that's exactly what you're referring to here, on the state level. Yeah, and, and so, uh, Harold. Yeah, and I, I referenced um, on one of our earlier shows the Passamaquoddy letter that articulated the same thing. You know, please, uh, in a in a subtle but but clear way, please exempt us from the Citizenship Act of 1924. Um, you know, I think <clears throat> when people talk about sovereignty. Um, most of the time in our current, in the state of Maine, especially in the current um, um, political and, and legislative context, they're they're talking about two different <clears throat> versions of of a lesser than uh, sovereign status than the United States. They're talking about the current, the seemingly current one that. Um, um, was uh, pretty much in place from 1820 uh, until 1975 uh, that that basically recognized a very little sovereign le legal and political control by us as tribal nations here in what is now Maine. Um, and then in starting somewhere in, around the, the, the decision, um, uh, uh, the Passamaquoddy v. Morton decision in 1975, we we get brought up to or recognized as uh, a lesser than position that is that is greater than the previous position and greater than our current position in terms of our legal and political control, um, but only up to the point of of this other subaltern, this other lesser than sovereign status, um, which is the one 
that that most other tribes uh, have uh, enjoy or are subject to in in their own way. Um, and then uh, 1980, we somehow, um, at least the courts think, and the state of Maine seems to think, what we that 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 uh, increased amount of sovereignty, we immediately signed it away in 1980, and um, um, are now back into the mostly uh, back into the previous condition of uh, almost having uh, 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 very little uh, sovereign um, uh, and control over our our, our well being. Um, I, I want to say that you know, again, just quoting from Palmersheim, and um, he references this idea that the discussion around sovereignty is sort of not um, critically imagined a lot of times in our political and legal structures as lesser than, and he talks about it as um, a poverty of theory concerning tribal sovereignty, which reduces the tribal pursuit of self determination. Uh, to dependence on federal, so that's the ideal that we are fighting for in the, you know, the LD 1626 scenario, um, the, this, this self, the pursuit of self-determination dependence on federal, particularly congressional sufferance, so that in, in contrast sh sharply with the constitutional and theoretical solidity that governs the interaction of the federal and state sovereigns, that um, this idea that we are dependent upon congressional or Supreme Court sort of whims uh, based upon our sovereignty, uh, even at its greater form, like other tribes, is is you know referenced in the Supreme Court in these last in the last year and a half, right? We have uh, 2021, the McGirt versus Oklahoma case. Um, that held the Creek Reservation never been disestablished and therefore most of Eastern Oklahoma was still Indian country. And then just a couple of months ago, uh, Oklahoma versus uh, Castro Huerta held, held that the federal government and the state and the state government have concurrent jurisdiction to prosecute crimes committed by non-Indians against Indians in Indian country. A totally new thing out of whole cloth that they just invented and took away um, in in essence, um, a sovereign uh, right that that um, separated us as sovereigns, as tribes, with this jurisdictional question from the states. So they just got away with, you know, just erased it a couple of months ago, and now we have this current case. Just the the oral arguments being heard in these last couple of days of Holland versus Brackeen about the Indian Child Welfare Act where you have the justices, some of whom I think Alito was the, <laughs> had the craziest things to say about Indians, where he just painted us as like savages at constant war before Europeans showed up, um, that, uh, you know, could undermine the entirety of tribal sovereignty as we know it as a form of political recognition by the United States because of uh, a history of treaty making. Um, so I think, you know, that's the poverty that that Palmersheim is talking about, that we are dependent, even in the federal context that we are fighting for here in Maine, uh, on the, the, the whims of a Supreme Court or a Congress that could uh, unilaterally change the, the frameworks of it. And, and, and by any stretch of the imagination, that is not sovereignty. Um, we are not in control. Um, and I think that's the that's the the real question that that burns uh 
because we are <laughs> we are in Maine, of course, fighting for very real things as it relates to um, our tribal sovereignty and our responsibility uh, culturally, um, socially, and otherwise to our own people, our own uh, places, and and the the for future generations. So sovereignty, from what I hear you saying, and and it does make sense. I mean, sovereignty is the meaning of sovereignty kind of changes um, to fit the majority rule or the majority law. Uh, if 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 a past definition of sovereignty um, doesn't do what they want it to do, then they change it and they change the definition. <laughs> they, they, you know, so how do, how do you overcome that? How do we overcome that sort of redefining? Well, this is, uh, may I um, step in quickly? Um, because um, uh, Darren was just referring earlier to the poverty of theory, right? And uh, and that means if you have a poverty of theory, uh, it means that you need to enrich that theory. And one of which is to A, really think through as you have tried to do in this um, series of um, uh, radio uh, uh, shows, Donna, uh, this whole long series of, on sovereignty, is to explore A, what is the problem that we're dealing with? Uh, where are the structural uh, problems uh, in that topic, uh, we talked about the contradictions, we talked about uh, the fact that it's much less stable as a concept than we think it is. We also have talked about it is constructed in the sense that people make it and make it and remake it. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a social construct. Uh, sovereignty is a social construct. And we are deconstructing it on the one level, but it also means we are reconstructing it in a way that we didn't know it before, just like when you have a car and that has broken down. One way in which my brother learned about how to repair a car was to take the engine apart, right? You take the engine apart, the, the, take all the pieces, and then when you are able to put it back together again, you actually have learned the skill. And that's a little bit like what we're doing now with the engine of government. We are breaking down a key element in the engine of uh, the political structure, the concept of sovereignty, and then start saying, okay, what is wrong with that vehicle that doesn't get on the road um, to come back as, as a metaphor. And so uh, one thing that I think is important is to uh, recognize some wrongs. One of them is a there's a poverty, not just in theory, but also a poverty in the symbolism of sovereignty. For example, I was thinking of the Penobscot flag as a, an example of sovereignty. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, when you talk about sovereignty, the Penobscot Nation flag is a really important, I think, to, to look at and to sort of understand how that flag came into being, a little bit of the history of that flag. And we're looking at uh, the year 1957. In, in 1957, uh, that's, that's the culmination of the legislative uh, bills that were submitted to terminate the tribes. And that's when you get the Penobscot uh, nation reaching out to, uh, to Murphy uh, to, uh, to, uh, to help, because he, he was a lawyer that John Mitchell, John Mitchell was Lieutenant Governor at the time. 
and John and uh, John met him during the war. So uh, he reaches out to Murphy for help to address the situation that's going on in the legislature. And uh, so, you know, Murphy steps in and, and kind of sees that the, the state has um, dismantled tribal government basically. And his, his advice to, the, to, uh, to Mitchell and the, the chief and council was to, you know, reconstitute the different offices. And among those, you know, the constituted the instead of gov instead of governor, they changed the name to chief, and then they uh, brought in uh, council members and uh, and clerk a clerk and uh, a few other offices. So they created the flag a flag and also Penobscot stationery, so that they would look more like an organized government. So when the flag reflects that thought, but they brought in, you know, they have symbols and, uh, and Sanabi uh, was the artist that created the stationery and the, and the flag. So let's talk about that flag. So uh, who, who wants to start that conversation? Um, well, since I brought it up, uh, if it's all right with you that yes. I kick in here. Yep. Uh, there was, of course, a flag already in use, um, a Penobscot a tribal flag, which was uh, used in the inauguration of the chiefs. Um, and it's a nice description of the earlier flag, which I've not seen a, an image of, but it's a nice description uh, of that flag um, as was used in 1913 during the inauguration of, um, of um, Peter Nicola, who succeeded um, Horace Nicola. And invited for that was um, anthropology professor Frank Speck, who, of course, uh, is the author of uh, a very famous book uh, on the Penobscot culture and history. And uh, I, um, uh, if I can find it um, here. Yeah, so um, that was described uh, by Frank Speck in 1913, just after he came back from the inauguration ceremony of um, Chief Peter Nicola, as follows. Uh, it consists of a pure white background on which is a red pyramid surmounted by a red cross. At each point of the cross is a star of the same color. The idea and form of the flag were given to the tribe several hundred years ago by the Jesuit missionaries. It has a religious significance. A huge flag has flown from the flagpole before the town hall during the recent inauguration. And in this case will be Chief Peter Nicola succeeding Horace Nicola. So that was in 1913. That description does not quite match with a earlier flag that we know was used um, uh, in the early 1800s. So that's not several hundred years earlier, but say minimally, let's say 100 to 150 years earlier. Uh, that flag looks slightly different. And so what you see here is the use of flags that was very important uh, in the colonial contestation over uh, Wabanaki country to seek the allegiance of the tribal nations to either the French crown or the uh, British crown. And so the chiefs would be given a flag. So when they would enter, uh, let's say, um, uh, Quebec, uh, they would hoist the French fleur-de-lis, uh, the, the royal uh, banner of the, of the French crown. And 
the British, of course, had the Cross of St. George, the Red Cross of St. George on the white field. So when uh, so the English insisted that the Penobscot would use, just like the other tribes, would use a flag, but then the flag that they had been given by the crown. So that was a subliminal hidden um, effort to establish sovereignty by the British crown, respectively the French crown, by having these tribal chief delegations to use those flags. So the improvement over that was the flag that the Penobscot nation was using, but they were heavily under the influence of uh, missionaries at the time. And so when a new flag was um, designed by Sanabe, Ronald Francis, who himself was a uh, World War II veteran, all these men knew the importance of the flag, the hoisting of the flag. You talked about uh, John Mitchell, a former Marine in the Pacific, the hoisting of the flag at Iwo Jima, right? Um, there was an extremely important, iconic moment in the, in the struggle against Japan. So uh, the significance of having a flag that reflected indigenous values clearly um, had to be um, redesigned. And that's what Sanabe did, but he was not uh, himself free from the influence of the colonial uh, mindset, nor of the church. So both state and church. So that's what you see in the um, the terms valor, right? That's in English. Why in English? Um, same thing with um, uh, the other uh, two uh, markers that, uh, that Darren can talk about. Yeah, the importance of this flag is, you know, kind of like the 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 struggle to have forms of recognition that you know the tribes you know as, as we've talked about sovereignty you know and the other the other two tombstones of of uh of uh faith and purity right that these are <clears throat> oriented towards a form of recognition that the flag is important in european and european american uh contexts and then this colonial and religious background um, to me, the flag is is about uh, the symbolism towards an uh, European and European American sovereign that we are equal to, um, and this struggle for indigenous iconography that reflects actually our notions of sovereignty is is um, left uh, somewhat off the page in the current uh, flag design. But what be would be interesting is the pursuing it in a way that is um, you know mobilizes our own indigenous iconography and our own language and values. And that would be, I think, a, a reorientation towards sovereignty in that way. What I would hope is that the Penobscot and the Wabanaki um, uh, allies of the old Wabanaki Confederacy, that they are maybe uh, having some sort of a discourse going on where we are just saying, what is it that we are envisioning in terms of a, a sovereignty that is no longer subject to the definition of a um, Supreme Court uh, attorney or um, or some sort of philosopher in, in England or uh, in the 19th century. Because in a way you're beholden by all these old court cases that are repeated over and over and over, merch versus so-and-so. And in a way you may have to cast off all these that old baggage because they hold you down because you allowed these old people, these old texts, these old documents to define the territory within which you try to maneuver for independence, self-government, and self-determination of your own resources. Um, go ahead, Darren. 
Yeah, no, I think um, I think that's really good, Harold. And I, you know, that that uh, that discussion it, it has been happening, and and in various ways and at various times. I think, and I think you're you're aware of some of it. I think um, so. A lot of what the um, you know, if, if you look at and and I just know Harold knows about this, like um, in the in the nineteen seventies as the the movements for um re reclamation and uh, uh, and recognition of our sovereignty and our our the the importance of our nations uh, took hold i think people mobilized quite a bit um i mean perhaps not and i think we credit we credit the uh the construct of the flag um uh to sanabe i believe um, and I think, um, and he was, it's hard to say, I, I, I never talked to Sanabe about it directly, you know, that, that, the, the notion of the flag, um, I think was a, was in some ways a mirroring, you know, it was a little bit of like, why did the Cherokee, um, you know, create a constitution <laughs> that looked a lot like the U.S. constitution. I think it was, I think it was playing with some of those, um, sort of frameworks but i think within the 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 cultural legacies of our confederacy there are um representations even in the double curve designs right that represent each of the nations and i think people are are really taking important um deep dives on that as as a different orientation to to represent us with um as well so i i would say that that's that's huge um in terms of it, it, and I'll just say this, and and this can be, you know, perhaps part of the setup as we um, think about closing out is, um, and I referenced this before, but, you know, if you look at what say the Penobscot Nation has done um, since 1980 in terms of our um, aims at protecting and monitoring our natural and cultural resources, um, and you look at what you know, the sort of underneath the surface of why um, the state of Maine, the governor and the attorney general might be worried about um, our sovereignty as it reflects the sovereignty of tribes um, elsewhere, outside of the Maine Indian Claim Settlement Act. I think our values of care for place, our values of of protecting the um natural and cultural integrity of our places along the Penobscot watershed. Um, and I think the real fear that motivates the resistance, um, and they, they don't always say this directly, but I think in terms of indirectly, what I pick up on is they fear a tribal regulatory infrastructure that might harm um, business interests in the state of Maine. I, th I think that's what motivates their reluctance because I think they say they see the tribes as as really concerned about the health and welfare of natural uh, and cultural ecosystem and um, recognize that we might have a different rubric for decision making than the state uh, of Maine in its sort of protection of these places. And that's what and I see it as a zero sum game. Also, which is very different than I think a lot of the tribes see it, that the, you know, as a as a Penobscot representative on the main Indian Tribal State Commission, um, they're pretty clearly say, 
they pretty clearly articulate if it's a tribal win, then it's somehow presumed to be a state loss when it comes to sovereignty. It's a zero-sum game. Most of the tribal folks there that are represent uh, on Mitzik, we we argue all the time for win-win scenarios. Like we say, look at the sovereignty of this tribe. That makes that state even better. And we're we're constantly arguing for the win-win scenario. Part of that is a diplomacy difference, but also, um, you know, we just don't enter the space that way. We don't we don't presume that our goals and our desires are counter to others. Um, yeah, but I do think that this the there's a particular amount of worry um, that is motivated by that zero sum game, um, and the therefore the the resistance to um, our ability to have kind of this, however however small, <laughs> however whatever the Supreme Court does with it, on that federal level, um, this ability to control our own environments and our own um, well-being and resources. Um, that regulatory infrastructure, I think, is is what is 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 in offing potentially um, by laws like LT sixteen twenty six that would you know have the full array of of all the, you know federally recognized tribal sovereignty. Last couple of minutes, Harold. Yeah, just to reflect on um, the series, um, one of the things that I think is important to, for people to know that history does matter, and it matters because the constructs that we are living with today were made in the past uh, by people with certain kind of interests in mind, um, and these interests are not always clear uh, the way they were presented to us afterwards. So you saw that with George Washington, one of the founding fathers, right? And as Donna earlier mentioned, uh, this revelation that she had that George Washington had a, a, was a major, had major vested interest in land. Um, and as did um, almost all the other founding fathers, they were also land speculators. So the man that um, who looked up to George Washington as his father was uh, was Henry Knox, uh, one of the biggest landowners here in the United States, uh, the Secretary of War uh, uh, during the Non-Intercourse Act, and the first one who tried to finagle a deal with uh, Chief Orono in 1784 uh, when he tried to persuade uh, the Penobscot to... Um, to basically give up their land and be satisfied with a small tract of land. Um, Orono, to his great and everlasting uh, praise, refused that. Uh, but the resistance that Orono had towards such a powerful man, both physically powerful, he was a big, uh, big man, but also politically and militarily powerful and financially powerful, um, that, that was a heroism uh, for on the part of this old man who stood up uh, multiple times against the military generals that were sent by Boston, by the Massachusetts government. Uh, General Lincoln was sent out, the same guy who sabered down the uh, Shays Rebellion. Um, these were the men that Boston sent out to intimidate the Penobscot, who had lost so many people themselves and whose role in the Revolutionary War was conveniently forgotten by the time. Uh, so the reason why history matters for people who are looking into the future is you learn A from the mistakes, you learn from the rights that were secured, you learn from the wrongs that were perpetrate, uh, perpetrated, and you try to leave a better space and place behind for future generations. That's 
our task, right? That's our task as standing between the past and the future. And that is how I see um, the value of uh, your hosting this uh, show, Donna, by perpetually adding yet another uh, show to the sovereignty that I think was originally planned for just one session, then became then became three, uh, and now we're at whatever number fifteen. Wow. <laughs> Not that many, but <laughs> pretty okay. close. Maybe maybe uh, maybe seven or eight. Uh, okay, so um, I'm just going to say one more thing. There's a quote I've been dying to use. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm going to end the show with it. Awesome. Uh, yeah, the uh, you know some things. Over, over the years, historically, never change. And St. Augustine, you know, he, he lived, what, 354 to 430 AD. This is what St. Augustine said. He said, in the absence of justice, what is sovereignty but organized robbery? So <laughs> thank, you, thank you all for joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Loring, uh, and uh, you've been listening to Webinaki Windows. I want to thank Professors Harold Prince, Darren Ranko, for uh, being with us uh, throughout this entire series, um, and appreciate uh, all of your input and your thoughts. Uh, it's, given, it's given us a lot to think about, and uh, I hope people will start this series from, uh, from, the February, from February 23rd all the way up to try to understand some of these uh, sovereignty uh, nuances. So uh, thank you again. Uh, and uh, the music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles, a CD called Dreamwalk. The engineers for our show are Jessica Lockhart of WMPG and John Mann of WERU. Uh, tune in again next month for another Webinaki Windows.